You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Good morning. You know, life is, uh, modern life is very complicated. And the older we get, the more we realize that even if you want to do the right thing, it's often very hard to decide what the right thing to do is. Maybe you're facing the choice between two different jobs that both have pros and cons, or maybe you're trying to decide how to school your children or where to go to school yourself. And in both these situations, the choices are not moral, they're not right or wrong, but they can still be very difficult to know what to do. But sometimes we face even more complicated situations where you have two goods, two right things to do that actually conflict with each other. Sometimes the choice of doing one of the good things means you have to violate doing the other good thing. And when this happens, we call this an ethical dilemma or a moral dilemma. Now, some of them are small and maybe don't have a great consequence, like when your wife or friend comes out of the dressing room and says, how do I look? Does this look good on me? You face one of the moral dilemmas of the conflict between maybe total honesty and maybe sleeping on the couch and being a good good encourager as well. That's a small one. Some ethical dilemmas are much weightier. Ethical dilemmas are so important that philosophers and theologians have often thought through these and, and present them as examples to help us think through how do you make decisions about what's right and wrong. So imagine with me if you're in a time and a place where you've experienced economic collapse and the government's collapse, so there's no services available from the government, and despite your genuine efforts, you've tried to find work, and, and there's just no money, and there's nothing to be had, at least you don't have any access to it, and you have four young children who are very sick and starving. Is it, is it right or wrong to steal food and or medicine to provide for your family, and, and why or why not? How would you figure that out? Or maybe take the very famous trolley problem. Maybe some of you have heard this one before. So you're walking by some trolley tracks in your city and you hear yelling because the brakes on this trolley that are going by have gone out and you happen to be standing right by this switch and the, the trolley's gaining speed. It's going to go down a hill and, and crash. But you're standing by the switch and you could either just let it keep going or you could switch the track and it would go into a place like maybe a sand pit or something that would would save them, but there's somebody on those tracks whose turn, his back is turned and they don't know, and you have to decide, do you pull the switch or not? And why or why not? What if there's five people on the trolley and two people, or five people and four people, or five and five, or what if you know some of the people, or what if they are doctors or lawyers or garbage collectors or criminals or terminally ill? Does all that matter? That's a moral dilemma. That's wrestling with which good outweighs the other. Maybe a bit more realistically, just this week I heard on the news, and maybe you did as well, about a business now that's contracting with school districts so that they can monitor all the texts and messages that are happening on the devices of all the K-12 students at that school, and their purpose is to look for suicide prevention as well as school violence threats, and that's good. But the dilemma is, what about privacy rights and what about if the monitoring picks up nonviolent crimes like drugs or other illegal activities? Are those going to be reported? Do they have access to monitor people like that? All these kind of things. That's a real example of a moral dilemma. Well, it turns out, friends, 
that the Bible, which is a very sophisticated and thoughtful book, has some moral dilemmas in it as well, as we'll see in just a moment. And today we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've, we've reached this point to the wonderful chapter 12. And in fact, this chapter is so rich and has so much going on in it that we're going to be spending the next four Sundays to kind of wrap up the fall before we start our Advent season uh, in this. And while Pastor Kevin's away, I'll be with you these th three Sundays, and then, and then uh, uh, Pastor Mike Cosper will take the last one. So there's a lot going on in chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses and the reason I started with this idea of ethical dilemmas is because we're going to see this is exactly what's going on in this text. It goes right at the heart of the issue. Jesus it has a massive conflict with his enemies, and the way he responds to it is truly astounding. So let's turn to it. We've, you've got to print it in your bulletin. Um, you can also, well, as we go along, we'll put it on the screen. Let's turn and look at Matthew chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you can look there too. So our story today is actually two stories that are woven together. You're supposed to take them as one. And they're two stories that happen on a Saturday. And why is that important? It's because Saturday, for the Jewish people, they called the Sabbath, still called the Sabbath. It's the seventh day of the week, according to God creating the world. And in typical Matthewan style, we don't have to wait very long at all to get a sense of what the issue is in the story. He's very quick in his storytelling. So look at those first two verses again with me in chapters 12, 1 and 2. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Okay. So, so far in Matthew... We've been seeing his, what we call, peripatetic ministry. He's traveling constantly. He's going around, he's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing people and casting out demons and loving people with great compassion. And if all these thousands of people following him, and of those thousands of people, he chooses 12 to be his disciples, to be with him, to learn, and to do what he does. And now that 12, those special disciples, are walking along with Jesus on a Sabbath day, on a Saturday, in, near Capernaum, heading to the local synagogue for worship and the hearing of Scripture. And as they're passing through some fields, they do something very natural, right? As natural as you stopping by Starbucks or a donut shop on the way to church, right? They, they're walking through these fields, and they pluck some ripe heads of grain, they rub them between their hands, get the seeds, and pop them into your mouth, into their mouths. And that... that uh, May not sound appealing to you, but I've actually done this before. I remember a long, long time ago when I was in the Czech Republic. It doesn't work with corn. It works with wheat, so don't try it with corn. But it, uh, it's, it's kind of enjoyable, a natural thing to do. So it's a natural thing as they're on the way to the synagogue. But the Pharisees, the Bible experts, the cultural and religiously conservative people who really know their Bibles, they were not happy. And so they turn straight to Jesus because he's responsible for his disciples. And they basically say, hey, your students on this field trip are out of control, right? And you're responsible for this. You see, from the Pharisees' perspective, what Jesus' disciples are doing is clearly work. They're basically harvesting and threshing the same thing that farmers do six days a week. And this is the problem because it's the Sabbath and you're supposed to be a day of rest. And why is that a problem? Because, as the Pharisees say, what you're doing is not lawful. Or maybe, 
and I think a much better translation maybe for us, just to put it in our parlance, would be, it's not biblical. Right? They're basically saying, what your disciples are doing is not biblical. And where do they get this idea? Well, I think pretty clearly from the Bible, right? I mean, the Sabbath commandment to rest and not work on the seventh day, it's right there in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment. Let me read it for you. Remember, God says, the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, they get a day off as well, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in other words, this... This commandment about the Sabbath, it's right there in the Ten Commandments, is based on creation itself, and it comes up over and over again all throughout the Old Testament. God's prophets encourage us to do this, and God speaks that this is important that you do. And so the reason why God did this, the reason he commanded a Sabbath day of rest was because it was good for God's people so that they would have a regular habit and rhythm of healthy rest, and that regular habit and rhythm of having a day where you're not working, you can then recenter yourself on God and worship him and learn about him and study him, have your life renewed. And that's, of course, what we do weekly, too. It's a good habit that shapes our lives. A Sabbath rest once a week, just like our one-third of our day that we sleep, is built into God's design for us as individuals in a society to remind us that we are dependent on God in everything. We can and work hard, we can and should work hard, but we have these built-in rhythms of sleep and rest. And for me, it's just a few hours a night usually. But still, it's a good rhythm um, that we're not in control, that God is in control. Now, because the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, sincerely wanted to be faithful to God and obey the scriptures, this Sabbath becomes a big deal. In fact, it kind of becomes one of the key markers of what it means to be a faithful Jew. The Jews who don't do this, even today, it's a debate, they're not seen as faithful. And we know this because, you see, we not only have the Bible, the Old Testament for the Jewish people, we actually have a bunch of other Jewish documents all throughout history, including some that come from a little later than the Bible, but they reflect some earlier times around Jesus' time, a, a collection of rabbinic teachings called the Mishnah, and in the Mishnah, you have this whole section that's just dedicated to the questions about the Sabbath, the Shabbat. Right? So you've got these 39 categories within the Shabbat section to say, here's the things you can do and not do. Here's how much you can carry and not carry. You may have seen in the Bible sometimes they'll talk about a Sabbath day's journey. That's because there were rules that you could go about a, little, about a half a mile is all that you could go without violating the work rule. And that idea of not working on the Sabbath continues all throughout Jewish history, including to modern-day Israel especially. So Orthodox Jews in Israel today, there's no public transportation on Saturday on the Sabbath. And any work, like, or especially for very strong Orthodox Jews, like using electrical items or turning on a light switch is work. So you plan ahead. So you, if you're going to need a light in a room the day before the Sabbath, you go ahead and turn it on. And you, you unscrew the light bulb in your refrigerator so you can still open it without causing that light to come on and still use it, right? And if you uh, already prepared food, etc., and if you have to use an elevator on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, well, they have these special Shabbat elevators 
that are pre-programmed so that on Saturday they stop at every floor so you don't have to do the work of pushing the button, right? I know that might sound kind of crazy to you and me, but I, I want you to understand that this is out of a sincere desire for most of them to really obey God's laws of the Sabbath, right? So it's a serious issue. And so you can understand way back here, 2,000 years ago, they are very upset with Jesus and his disciples. So what's he going to say? What is his response to that, that they're working? Before answering that, jump ahead to verse 9, because I said there's two stories here that are meant to be read together. If you look at chapter 12, verse 9, it says, after he responds, which we'll come back to, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there with a shriveled hand, and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful, is it biblical to heal on the Sabbath? So now again, Jesus and his disciples, they've been traveling on the Sabbath day. They've arrived at the, the um, gathering, the synagogue in Capernaum. And this time the Pharisees are loaded for bear. They are fed up with Jesus' craziness and his, all the stuff he's doing. And they want to trap him. They want to bust him. And this is their opportunity. They set up this Sabbath-breaking situation and say, is it biblical? If you heal on the Sabbath, let's see what happens. What's he going to say? Well, simply, what Jesus says in both of these stories is astounding. I've been studying this passage for a lot of years, and every time I read it and think about it, I am shocked, again, about how sophisticated, how nuanced, how challenging, how deeply biblical, and also how completely unexpected it is that he says and in response to both of these challenges on the Sabbath, Jesus is like a, a skilled fencer. He, he uh, agile parry and repost, right? He blocks and then turns and shows them that they actually don't know their Bibles as well as they think they do. So let's look at his response. There's several things he says. Let's look at it. First one, first response is in verses 3 and 4. He says, is this biblical? He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only the priests. So the first response Jesus gives, he goes straight to the Bible to a story from 1 Samuel 21, where David and his companions, maybe we could even say his disciples, were on the run from the crazy King Saul. If you remember that story or don't know it, it's that God had anointed King David to be the next king, but it took 10 years or so where David is fearing for his life and where crazy King Saul, who is unfaithful to God, is trying to kill David. So he's got 10 years and all these people are following David, like disciples, like crowds, and, and he's in desperate need. He's in the wilderness, and at one point they end up at Nob, and they go to the priest, the Himalach there, and say, we don't have anything to eat. And the priest says, well, uh, all I have is the consecrated bread that only the priests are supposed to eat, and he gives it to them. And they eat this bread that only the priests are supposed to eat. Now Jesus uses this very interesting story to begin to push and prod, because you see, David is never condemned for this. And there's even some other complications in the story if you go back and, and read it. The point is not that the analogy is 100% direct, it's that there's something going on where David, within the law, 
can break the law because there's something deeper, there's a deeper need going on. Okay, so that's, maybe feels a little weird, kind of a weird story. So that's the first response he makes. Look at his second response, verses 5 and 6. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests who are on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet they're innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So first, Jesus gives a story from the prophets, basically. That's what Samuel would have been considered. And now he turns straight to the law. If that wasn't convincing enough from the prophets, I'll show you something for the law. And he points out that God has established that there's a, a certain group of people who are priests who are called upon and to be, be obedient to God. They have to perform certain rituals, like putting out the showbread and, and butchering certain animals and, and uh, circumcising a boy on the eighth day and certain holidays, etc. And when they do those duties, sometimes they will conflict. In fact, every Sabbath they'll conflict because the priests then have to do work that being a human they're not supposed to do, but being a priest they're commanded to do. And so again, it's one of these moral dilemmas. There's two good things, and as he says, they actually desecrate the Sabbath when they do it, yet they are innocent. So another interesting example. Right? And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He even goes farther and said, and there's something greater than the temple here. We'll come back to that. So again, Jesus is pointing out that some moral dilemmas are like baked right into God's law and what God's people have to do to be faithful. That's not all he says. Look at verse 7, third response. Then he says, if you had known what the words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So first he starts with the prophets, then he goes to the law. Now he goes to Hosea, a, a text that Matthew and Jesus particularly love. It's used earlier in the book as well. And he quotes this very intriguing verse that you, you and I need to feel the weight of. Basically what it's saying is God has established an order for his people with a bunch of details about worship and obedience. And that's what kind of sacrifice means here. It's all the things that God has commanded, all the duties we're supposed to do. And within that system, God himself says, I actually desire mercy or compassion towards other people more than this very same thing that I've already established and said you have to do. The point is, it may be shocking to us, is that God is saying through Hosea that there's something that is more important than just a meticulous obeying of all the details the meticulous doing what is right, it is love and compassion and mercy for others. And in fact, we know this is exactly what Jesus means because later on in the book, when he's in the sharpest conflict with the Pharisees in chapter 23, he says this crucial thing in Matthew 23, 23, easy to remember. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, same people, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, so every, that's like a, just a metaphor for like the super details you pay attention to, but you've neglected, look at those words, the weightier matters of the law, justice, or I think maybe better righteousness, and mercy and faithfulness. These you have ought to have done without neglecting to others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's where that comes from, if you've ever heard that phrase. So are you starting to see a pattern yet? Jesus is showing, and it's a little uncomfortable, that in the Bible itself there are moral dilemmas 
That is that we need the wisdom to weigh out, to sift what is the right thing to do, and it won't always be what we immediately think. But Jesus isn't done yet. Look at verse 8. His fourth response, he says, after all this, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So if you're, if you're reading through Matthew, he's already called himself the Son of Man, and that's really, really important. Because the Son of Man in Matthew is referring back to the book of Daniel, where there's this mysterious person who is distinct from the Ancient of Days, yet he has all glory, honor, and dominion and rule. So there's this being who is separate, but also shares in the same glory and honor. It's a mystery. And the Gospels say, that's Jesus. The Son of God, Jesus, is this Son of Man. And so basically what Jesus is saying in verse 8 is, you know what the ultimate answer is? Why my disciples are okay? Because I'm greater than the temple, I'm greater than David, I'm greater than Moses, I'm actually the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is what I would call manuscript drop. Right? This is the moment, that's like whatever else I might argue, I'm actually the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the arbiter of what is true. There's actually one more final response Jesus gives, and it's in the second story after they're trying to trap him. And this is the final and culminating one. Look at verses 11 and 12. Jesus said to them, after they're, they're saying, is it biblical to heal on the Sabbath? He says, if any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful, it's biblical to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus' final response to this question of what's biblical regarding the Sabbath, he refers to what we might call for them the animal in the hole dilemma. Right? So they didn't have trolleys, so they didn't have the trolley dilemma, but they had the animal in a hole dilemma, right? which is, and this happened often enough in the ancient world, that there were all kinds of debates about this animal in the hole dilemma. So you have an ox or a camel or a sheep, it stumbles, it falls into a big ravine that it can't get out of on a Sabbath. So then you face the dilemma. It's a valuable piece of property and money, maybe it's hurt, maybe it's moaning, maybe it's upside down, but to get it out would require work. And you have to break the Sabbath. So it's the animal in the hole dilemma. What are you supposed to do? Well, the Jewish rabbis of different traditions had all kinds of debates on this. The people who lived in Qumran, those Dead Sea Scroll people, they were hardcore and they said, no way, no work, animal dies. Suck it up. Right? Later rabbis said, well, there's, you know, there might be some exceptions to this. So we can't do work on the Sabbath, but maybe you can drop some food down into the pit so they can survive till till Sunday, or maybe if it's really muddy, we could put some tarps or something down there so maybe the animal could get themselves out. I guess you just kind of walk by and, and drop it or something, right? <laughs> Again, I know it sounds kind of crazy to us, but I want you to appreciate that they're trying to do what's right, right? They're trying to obey the Sabbath, but also trying to face this other good. And then because of this animal in the whole dilemma, some people then start to ask the question, okay, so what do you do about if someone's sick or someone's giving birth on a Sabbath? Can you help them, etc.? And different rabbis have different opinions. The super conservatives say, no, it doesn't matter. Most of the rabbis would say, you know, you, there are exceptions to this, right? Well, Jesus looks at this whole situation, right? You have this man who's 
deformed, and so he's cut off from working probably. He can't go to the temple. It's this man, this poor man who's in great need in the synagogue. Jesus looks at this whole situation. He, he knows all the debates, all the stuff that's going on, the animal old dilemma, all that, and he just says, Oi, babe, this is ridiculous, right? You see, it would have been easy for Jesus to, to just say to the man, and this would have made the Pharisees happy if he could just would have said, I really care about your situation, but you know we can't break the Sabbath, so if you could just hold on for a few hours. And then the Pharisees couldn't have been mad at him, right? Because that's what they wanted him to do. But Jesus, he won't stand for it. He sees the issue, and he will not avoid going to the heart of the matter, that compassion and need overrules such fastidiousness. Because, he ultimately says in verse 11, you're missing the point. The point is not all the things you can't do to accidentally work. The point is the Sabbath is for doing good. That's the key in verse 11. The Sabbath is for doing good. That's the point of it. So he heals the man right there in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's a lot. You just thought, what's he going to say about those tiny little verses? There's a lot in there. And I know I've said a lot, and it's such a... a very tense situation. So I want you to notice, ask the question, so what does all this mean? I want you to notice how careful and nuanced and beautifully wise Jesus is. He doesn't just say, Sabbath rules are stupid, I don't have time for that. Nor does he placate and appease and kind of walk on eggshells so he doesn't offend the very conservative biblical scholars. He doesn't deny the good of the Sabbath. But he presses into the heart issue of what work is and really what the Sabbath is meant to be. And I'd like to suggest to you that if you step back and look at all five of Jesus' responses in this, they really boil down to one beautiful two-sided coin, two-sided idea that is absolutely crucial. And it's really the exact same thing that Jesus was already teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like suggest to you that chapter 12 is really just another application of the same teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. And what is that two-sided truth? The first part of it is this, that Jesus is showing us that even when we are trying to do what's right, that it is so easy for us to misinterpret God's commands, that we need to read God's word for the intent that is driving at our hearts, not just the surface commands. And it's so easy to not do that. Do you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gave instructions about big issues like adultery and murder and oaths and all these sort of things? Recall that he taught there that it is possible to obey the exterior things without doing the really important thing, the heart level response to God because God's point in giving commands about adultery and murder, etc., is that he wants to get our hearts and shape our hearts and everything in us tends to just kind of keep things on the surface and just be content if we're obeying the outside. And I would like to suggest to you that the very same thing Jesus just taught about the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments back in chapter 5, he's now applying to the 4th commandment. The story of David, the story of the priest, the quoting of Hosea 6.6, the helping of an animal or person in need, at the heart of all of that is this crucial idea that there are commands, but if you don't learn the wisdom to sift what are the weightier matters of the law, 
you are in the great, potentially dangerous situation of out of zeal for the Bible, actually not being biblical. And so too with the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, the point of the Sabbath is for rest, for flourishing, for our good, for doing good. And so Jesus is upset with the Pharisees and scribes that they're so blinded by their slavish obedience to the law and its thousands of complex applications that they've missed the point of what God was doing with the Sabbath. And so if you and I face one of these ethical dilemmas that will either give life to people or obey a Sabbath stipulation, Jesus is saying, obviously we choose life and compassion. As the great commentator Dale Bruner says it, the point of the law is not the scrupulous self-sacrifice you draw from it, but it's the wide-hearted humanity that the prophets make of it. Or we might say, paraphrasing Hosea 6.6, 6, God saying, I want human sympathy, not just superhuman principles or disciplines. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Does that feel a little too loosey-goosey? Good you're experiencing the cognitive dissonance, the, the disruption that Jesus brings into all of our settled things. We want everything to be settled and, and fixed and solved and black and white in every way. And there's clearly right and wrong, but what he's doing is he's, he's creating a discomfort for us to recognize that having everything nailed down and staying on the surface of what God is about and not learning to weigh and wait which things are more important is not what God wants of us. We need to feel the pinch of this text. That's not the only thing going on. That's one side of it is he's showing us that we've got to care about the heart of God's law. But the other thing of it is this. Just like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying by his coming into the world, he is transforming all of God's teachings through this, his incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension completely transforms history and humanity's relationship to God. And so that's what he's saying in, in verse 6 when he said something greater than the temple is here. Yeah, it was true in the Old Testament, but I'm telling you something more than the temple is here. And when he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath again, he is saying something so much more than just affirming that heart and of law, he's saying, I am now in charge of everything. And this is exactly what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember when he's teaching about the law and he says, you've heard it said, now I say to you. Right? No prophet would say that. That's only the Christ can say that. And then at the end of the sermon in chapter 7, go back and read it. He says, anyone who hears and obeys these words of mine. In other words, he now as the Son of God incarnate, is the ultimate revelation of what God wants for his people. And so he says, you want to know why it's okay for my disciples to eat and to work in this sense on the Sabbath? It's because I have transformed everything. And how does he transform it? Well, this is why it connects. There's a bad chapter break here between chapters 11 and 12 because there's not a chapter break in Matthew's eyes. If you think back to the end of chapter 11 that our dear brother Eric preached on last week, how does Jesus transform the Sabbath? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you. That's, he gives the Sabbath in himself. Take my yoke upon you, for it's easy and light, and you will find rest for your souls. He is taking upon himself and transforming 
what God's will for us is. So that's a lot. I know. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by all the stuff I just said. Go back and listen to the sermon on half speed if that would help. That'd be fine. But as I prayed through this text and wrote this sermon, my heart was, God, I don't want to just like give them a bunch of interesting stuff to know, which could be helpful. I really care about this impacting our lives. And so I just want to invite you today to take Jesus' yoke upon you, to, to invite you into his way of wisdom, his way of seeing and being in the world. Because this week you and I will face all kinds of situations and people. I doubt that you and I will find ourselves standing at a track with a big lever and have to say, should I pull it or not? I realize that's probably not what's going to happen in your lives. But I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that probably somebody's going to wrong you this week, and somebody's going to do something wrong, someone you know this week, maybe against you, maybe not. Maybe you're going to get triggered. Maybe you'll become obsessed with what your wife or husband or friend said, and you're playing it over and over in your mind and getting more agitated and hurt and angry and upset. And, and maybe what they did really was wrong. Maybe it's only that you perceived it as wrong, but maybe it really was wrong as well. What do you do? Well, I think what we see here is an invitation to learn to take Jesus' yoke upon us and learn his way, God's way of seeing the world. And when he looks upon the world, God who knows right and wrong for sure and cares about it, but he looks upon the world with compassion and he looks at the heart of people's need for rest. And you are going to run into people this week that need rest and love and undeserved grace. And to be a follower of Jesus means that we be instruments of God's compassion, mercy, kindness, and love. Because those are the weightier matters of the law. And maybe once you've done that work in your own soul, maybe there's still a time to, to call someone out or something. It's, I guarantee it's not as often as you think it is, right? Because the tendency in all of us is to focus on the externals rather than internals, especially if you are in my own personal personality type group. If you're a SFTR, a stickler for the rules, right? Maybe you're a particularist, an Enneagram One, a firstborn. Maybe you had so much chaos in your childhood or now that you just feel this, you've got to have order and everything has to be ordered, right? If that's true of you and there's that's true of all of us to some degree, but some of you are particularly true that way, I would imagine that's probably worked out well for you financially and career-wise, but maybe not so much relationally. Can I get a witness? Especially to whatever degree that's how we find ourselves showing up, this text should make us feel a little uncomfortable today. All of us and some of us in particular, because Jesus is pushing us to see that some things matter than others, and particularly love, mercy, and compassion towards those in need, sometimes will actually override our free-stride, bubble-wrapped, measurable ethics and morality. As again, Dale Bruner says, surprisingly, a lot of times, a biblical seriousness that's anxious to protect the Bible's message, which is a good thing, can ironically and sadly damage that message and that our kind of a biblicism can actually be what we see Jesus 
fighting against in the Bible a lot of times. And so I just want to invite you not to kind of a relativism, nothing matters or nothing's right or wrong, but to a learning of how God sees the world and learning to take his yoke upon you. And as we come to the conclusion of our service, we love here at Sojourn to end not just with a call, but to remind us that this is all possible because these elements at the table, these images, remind us that Jesus has entered the world when we were dead and has carved a new way of being alive and a new way of being human and a new way of relating to God and to each other. And there's actually one verse in our text that we didn't say anything about yet, and it's the very last one. Because there's really two responses to to Jesus' strong teaching and unsettling teaching here in chapter 12. In in verse 14, it says that the Pharisees, when they heard this, it was the the straw that broke the camel's back. They said, we're going to kill him. This was so unsettling to them. But there's another response. It's the man to whom Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And today, friends, if you don't feel like I can handle enough, I can't handle anybody telling me to do anything else. I'm overwhelmed already. That's where you are. Wherever you are today, I want you to see this picture of Jesus looking upon this man and saying, just stretch out your hand. That's all you got. That's fine. And he does. And in great compassion, he experiences the healing of the Lord. And that healing is possible because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, this, this is an image of what's about to happen that, again, creates a new relationship. And so, too, the wine that is poured out represents his blood. And so we are very glad at the end of a service to refocus our hearts on that truth. And how we practice this here in our church is that if you're a baptized Christian, we are thrilled that you're here and we invite you to come forward and partake of this. You just take a piece of the bread and and rip it off and then dip it in the wine or the juice. And as you do that, I'd invite you to just Think of yourself stretching forth your hand to the Lord and finding his compassion and healing. Let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.